Hello, and welcome to NACLA Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac. It's been a tough week for those of us at NACLA. We've looked on in dismay as the new Trump administration has taken the first steps toward enacting some of its most fascistic campaign promises, from gag orders and censoring government websites to a religion-based immigration ban and moves to defund arts and public news organizations. I'm one of a small team that works hard to keep NACLA going, and while I can't speak for my colleagues, I do feel safe saying that we at NACLA are not content to sit and watch as the current administration violates our values, endangers the most vulnerable members of our society, and moves rapidly to silence dissent. Solidaridad para siempre is not just a slogan, it is a commitment. For those who take to the streets in protest, we are with you. For those who take up their pens and their cameras, we are with you. For those across the United States, in Latin America and beyond, who resist bullies and stand up for the rights of the marginalized, we are with you. For those who have not yet joined the fight, now is the time. We are here and we need you. NACLA is a not-for-profit organization and we're proud of the work we do on a small budget. We rely on the generosity of NACListas to produce this podcast, articles for the NACLA website, and the NACLA report. Now, more than ever, we need honest and diligent reporting, and NACLA needs your help to make that happen. Go to nakla.org slash donate, and please, give whatever you can. I'll post a link in the show notes as well. So, as the Trump administration pushes forward with its agenda, it's important to keep in mind that this political shift happening in the United States is part of a larger global pattern, the resurgence of right-wing politics. The NACLA Report's winter issue, Right Turn, was all about this shift in Latin America and the United States, on how it came about and on what the future of the political left may look like under a new right. A couple months ago, I talked with NACLA contributor Ben Cowan about the emerging right-wing caucus in Brazil, the ouster of President Dilma Rousseff last summer, and what the future might hold for Brazilians. My name is Ben Cowan. I am an assistant professor in history and art history department at George Mason in Fairfax, Virginia. And I think of myself as a historian of conservatism, especially um, right-wing and extreme right-wing conservatism as social, political, and cultural movements in the 20th century Americas. So I wrote a book... Uh, called Sex and the Security State, um, which is about the rise of uh, religious and extreme right activism in the Cold War in Brazil as part of a sort of transnational um, vision of the Cold War as a cultural struggle. So really the way that, you know, as the book's title suggests, um, the Cold War military dictatorship in Brazil was cooperating with civilian conservatives to secure sex, right? That is to both envision sex as an important battleground in the Cold War and then also to police it, right? And in so doing, fight Cold War. Um, and that led me to um, some other kinds of research that are ongoing for me and that relate to what I wrote for NACLA, um, about the rise of a much more transnational religious right. You know, I mean, there are a lot of terms that get thrown around about this, but the new right, the religious right, neoconservatism, 
Christian conservatism. Um, all of these are sort of themes that I'm interested in in the recent history, uh, not only of Brazil, but also of Latin America and of the Americas more broadly. Um, so I'm working on a project now that's about um, the origins of Christian conservative coalitions across national and also denominational borders um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. So a sort of core group of reactionary activists who are responding to what they see as modernization and secularization. Um, and in so doing, are forming all kinds of unlikely alliances with other conservatives, both at home and abroad, and also in other denominations. I kind of want to start with this idea of the neo or alt or new right wing um, that's kind of arisen both in the in the United States and clearly in Brazil. Um, do you do you see it as kind of a common like is is it really uh, you have a I think you call it, yeah the Nova de Rita, I I'm sorry my Portuguese pronunciation is going to be horrible. Um, <laughs> But so they do call it the new right down there. Yeah, Nova Judeita. I mean, that's less a political than an academic term. There are people who use that in common parlance. But there's also, um, you know, since the 80s, right, there have been people in Brazil writing about this phenomenon, thinking about um, the sort of insertion of conservative religious politics, especially non-Catholic religious politics, into um, national policy making as something called the knowledge data. So it is a term that has some purchase there. Okay. I'm thinking specifically about, I mean, so what, what you kind of say in the article is that really the, the one factor that is actually novel, that is really new about this right wing movement is the, how explicit the yeah. racist and homophobic, um, <clears throat> language really is. Yeah. Uh, which is which is you know interesting and and it's uh, I think it's something that's distinct from the United States because a, a lot of people have talked about explicit racism in this in this election but um, I it's something I've seen in the U S much more I would say um, than maybe the media tends to acknowledge um, but this idea of like racism being something that is inferential um, and really like openly and aggressively denied in Brazil up until this moment. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder just kind of what you think about just Brazil's kind of unique and particular history of their relationship with their racism, um, both systemic yeah. and, and just kind of cultural, um, has kind of how that's kind of created this moment and, and how that sort of makes it a more, a more jarring uh, turn than maybe it might have been in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really excellent question, Helen, and thanks for asking it that way. Um, I I guess I'm of two minds uh, in that I do see, you know, Brazil as having, you know, an, a unique, of course, a unique history of sort of like thinking about race and nation and racism and nation. Um, on the other hand, I'm wary of drawing lines too neatly around that Um Given that it is, you know, that that inevitably one sort of um, not only contends with, but someone somehow adopts the kind of mythology of racial democracy, um, which is very much a mythology um, in Brazil. That said, um, I think what sort of 
striking about this, and I have to admit that I myself can't help but note the comparisons, is the way that the sort of um, the explicit racism goes against everything that has been like championed as nationally Brazilian for almost a century now, right? I mean, racial democracy moves to the center of, you know, Brazilian national identity sometime in the early part of the 20th century, and especially in the 30s and 40s during the Vargas regime, um, and becomes sort of, you know, sanctioned as national identity, right? Um, so the idea of Brazil and Brazilians as somehow naturally or nationally tolerant has really become a, like a, a mainstay of national identity um, and even more so of regional identity when we think about a place like Rio. Um, and yet, you know, counter to that, there's this sort of celebration, right, of this transgressive explicit discriminatory language, right, um, that I think resembles what's happening in the United States in at least two ways. One is the sort of reveling in it, right, the reveling in extreme language, right, language that is intended to insult and provoke being celebrated as somehow liberatory. Um, and then also the coloring of that with a deliberate tactic to portray hegemonic groups Right, namely, you know, white patriarchal, whiter, I should say, patriarchal groups, um, as marginalized. Right, if in the United States we're seeing phenomena like uh, what is called patriotic correctness, right, uh, the notion that you know that it is equally offensive to offend the sensibilities of white nationalists as it is to offend the sensibilities of people who are excluded by white nationalism. Right. In Brazil, the analog we see is someone like Jari Bolsonaro or Silas Mulafaya talking about uh, heterophobia, right, as somehow analogous or equal to or equal and opposite to homophobia, right? So adopting a kind of minoritarian status as a way of pushing back against the politics of minoritarian and identitarian gains in things like, you know, civil rights and... Um, and uh, anti-discrimination laws. So there is a, a deep similarity there in terms of the tactics and in terms of the sort of extremity of language being used. I think it makes it all the more striking, right, that the reaction in the United States is one that harkens back to a mythic past before political correctness, right? A time before one could associate, uh, you know, tolerance, with American national values, right? Whereas in Brazil, the, the, the idea is kind of, uh, you know, to ignore racial democracy as a Brazilian value, right? And to, um, harken back to a mythic past that is equally colonial, equally patriarchal, and equally, um, whitewashed, right? And to achieve that sort of similar phenomenon in Brazil, similar to the phenomenon in the United States, despite the almost century-long hegemony of racial democracy, right? I mean, I think it is kind of amazing that these sort of backflips of, you know, um, bringing white patriarchy and Christian hegemony to the center of a narrative about uh, minoritarian repression can be achieved in both of these very different contexts. So in, in light of this new mayor... In Rio, um, Crivella. Yeah. 
Uh, and he and his uh, assertion that, like Jerusalem, Rio should be a walled city. So huh. this this idea of uh, regionalism and that the the concentration of the this white patriarchal movement, as as you've called it, um, would be urban or to urban to an extent, um, in a way that's kind of contrary to how we imagine the the rural white working class white yeah. uh, nationalist movement in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I think both of those things have to be disrupted in terms of where this is coming from. I mean, you know, there's really, ha- there's been, I think, a sort of a quickness to judge and a quickness to move in terms of thinking about where the so- so-called white lash of the, of the Trump election came from. And, you know, if you look at what little data we have, right, you know, Trump voters the median income was something like $72,000 and a lot of people in cities (laughs) voted for Trump. Right. So I think it's a little, it's sort of an easy out to take the kind of, you know, I don't know, uh, the establishment democratic party vision of a world in which, well, the Democrats really failed rural white people and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Right. When instead it's much more complex than that. Right. And also much deeper and I think that similarly in Rio, right, there are complicating factors. Um, you know, first of all, that, you know, a huge proportion of the electorate abstained, right, um, and then maybe regretted that afterward. Um, but also that, you know, the, the locus of, you know, elite fear and what we might call something of a moral panic is you know, never just urban or rural, right? I mean, that's not, that kind of regionalism, I think, is like a little bit impossible to think about in the world that we live in, right? Especially given the technologies via which such moral panic travels. Um, I mean, when Crivella said that the, that the city should be walled like Jerusalem, I believe he also said something like, you know, we're living in a, a deep moral crisis or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, that, and that the, the the wall was an attempt to, to block out whatever the sources of that might be. And I imagine, based on his language, that he's envisioning, you know, browner, dangerous people affiliated with what is always called the trafico, right, the, the traffic in, in narcotics. So he's invoking a kind of mythology about space and morality and invasion and contagion that in a way is kind of timeless, right? That, and is, you know, certainly a staple of all of the, you know, 20th, or 19th, 20th and 21st century conservative movements that I can think of, right? I mean, there, of course, is the analog of the wall around Rio with the wall along the border that supposedly we're going to build in the United States, right? But this idea of really of contagion and safe space, right, and a desire to sort of protect one's territory, I don't know that we can draw easy actual spatial lines around that, right? It seems to me that the people who want to draw those spatial lines are people like Trump and Crivella, when in fact, you know, the the battle lines are much more, and the fault lines really are much more complex than that. Um, so, you know, if in the United States we have, you know, highly educated, high-income, urban people who voted for Trump, similarly in Rio, you know, there it is not necessarily that much of a surprise that someone like Crivella could win the election, given the, the complexity of the identities involved. Mm-hmm. So you talk about in the article this, this kind of three-pronged 
approach to uh, kind of forming a coalition for the right uh, the right wing caucus in the Brazilian government. That is it's beef bullets and the Bible. Yeah, yeah, bala biblia boy. Yeah, and and what do we make of that? I mean, it, it seems like. So you say um, that the the beef, I mean, it basically means rural, uh-huh. a rural contingency. Um, but, uh, but I mean, I I would say, like, I don't, I'm not an expert on Brazil, but I would assume that there's a lot of overlap in those three. Um, Absolutely. They're like easy categories, right? Uh-huh. I mean, that don't actually represent the sort of locus of the things that they are invoking, so with something like, you know, beef, right, intended to evoke this kind of rurality, sure, there, there are actual, you know, agribusiness interests involved. There are rural politicians and rural constituencies involved. But there's also the culture of Brazilian country music, right, Musica Sertaneja, mm. uh, which is not, I mean, you know, like, it, it draws on these tropes of a kind of mythic past of, like, you know, a heartland of Brazil where people did eat a lot of beef and they, you know, and they, you know, had a cattle culture and, you know, there was a different kind of relationship to modernity, right? Um, but on the other hand, like, you know, that music is, is at the top of the charts across Brazil, right? Like people right, in Rio right. and Sao Paulo are some of the biggest consumers of this kind of rural culture, right? And they identify with it as like their own mythic past as well. So like the fault lines there are, I mean, and the, the sort of um, the metonyms for what conservatism and reaction mean are things that appeal really broadly, right? Even if um, the symbols themselves seem to be delimited by space or class. Mm-hmm. It's about a, it's about a feeling of, of being uncomfortable with change or, or yeah. this, this kind of, uh, what do you use, like co-optation of a minority, like feeling under siege. I, there is there is this other difference um, that strikes me particularly in the context of that protest. It, it was earlier this month, and I think it was like fifty or sixty protesters broke into Congress and were ba- basically calling for a military coup, oh. um, which is which is a little different from what what the Trump voters I think are voting for. Although I mean, there's populist sentiments, and and I know a little about Getulio Vargas, the the dictator in Brazil in the in the twentieth century who who did have a lot of kind of populist style support, correct uh-huh. me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Good point. Uh-huh. So so I mean, in the United States there's a lot of punditry that's kind of pointing to the connections between populism and dictatorship and there there are all sorts of problems with that. Hugo Chavez often ends up being the victim of those analyses. Um yeah. and I wonder what what this uh glorification, invocation of the really the, the explicit invocation of the violence of the military dictatorship, the torture, um, yeah. what that kind of points to in, in where Brazil is headed. I mean, I think like with most of what we've been discussing, we can either see that as comparative or divergent. It is unsurprising coming from, from the right in Brazil, given that this, that has long been a trope of Brazilian conservatism, right? The idea that, you know, of the idea of, uh, especially on the extreme right, of celebrating the military dictatorship and its depredations, right? That, you know, that this was a good idea, right? And that the people, especially in the military, who were punished for their involvement were martyrs to the cause, right? I mean, Ustra, who's the guy that Bolsonaro, you know, singled out for celebrating, you know, it was a torturer, but was, it has been long been a cause celeb of the right. So that is part of an older pattern. 
I mean, if I had to draw a comparison there, I think I would I would think about, you know, the right hagiography of Reagan, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, be, both in terms of this idea of hearkening back to a previous period that was some sort of golden age for both traditional values and capitalism, right? But also a sort of fundamental mythologizing and misunderstanding of what that period was actually like, right? I mean... The dictatorship, of course, is an incredibly, the, the, the 1964 to 1985 dictatorship is an incredibly complicated part of Brazil's history, right? If only by dint of its longevity is not readable just as the kind of, as, as whatever its proponents want to read it as, right? I mean, it was a, a, a completely Byzantine series of governments in the end. And also one that we can't read as just unilaterally neoliberal, for example, right? In fact, the government had a complex set of relationships with industry and state control, um, and even with things like agrarian reform, right? Um, so the current rights wish to read back onto the dictatorship as a golden age of traditional values and even of, you know, free trade and these other kinds of, um, sort of analogs and writers that had become part of a conservative platform is as much a myth as remembering Reagan as, a, you know, a champion of the of the kind of extreme right uh, platforms that we see now, right? Reagan himself was a little bit to the left of most mm-hmm. of the champion him as, you know, the sun was also rising on America, the sun was rising again in America. So I think um, there is a need in when it comes to movements like this to have a kind of a touchstone in the past Right. And I think both of those, you know, the celebration of Reagan and the celebration of the dictatorship are kind of easy and yet also provocative reaches for movements like this. Um, the evocation of torture, I mean, to me, that seems, you know, shocking, but designed to be so. Right. It, it is designed to, um, you know, declare a willingness to not to adhere to the previous rules of debate, right? A frustration with the idea that, um, I mean, as the military historians and the partisans of the ex-military uh, quote-unquote victims of the truth commissions would have it, uh, you know, the, the left won the historiographic battle, right? I mean, they would always say things like, well, we won the war, but, or we won the battle against guerrillas or subversion, but, the left won the war for how to tell the story, things like that. Um, so this kind of, um, you know, really kind of fictional world in which right-wing forces portray themselves as people who have like have lost their voice, right? And in order to reclaim it, have to say things that break all the rules of civil discourse, like torture was a good thing, for example. Um, and I think that, I, I think there are a lot of ways we could do that similar to the reaction to political correctness in the United States, um, which is presented as kind of populist, right? But in fact is like, a, is, uh, in a way a strategic way, means of distinguishing oneself from other forms of conservatism. I mean, another, another particularity that strikes me is the relationship between the, the, um, the faces of this movement, as it were, the Bolsonaro and, and, uh, Malafaya yeah. and, and others, Cruella, et cetera. Um, they're, 
the different relationship between them and uh, and religion, evangelical uh, Pentecostalism, uh, as as opposed to the relationship between Donald Trump as as a figurehead, or even Steve Bannon and the and the religious right in the United States. Yeah. Um, it was surmised that there would be some hesitancy on the part of, of evangelists in the United States who had supported candidates like Ted Cruz um, to, to come home to Trump. He obviously changed his answers to some very crucial questions uh, later in the game, and yeah. that may have done they, that may have made the difference. Um, but these voters aren't—they don't appear to be in his uh, in his pocket because of his answers so much as the single issue the Supreme Court. And then hoping that he'll nominate a conservative judge. He doesn't appear to be someone who has personal um, support from yeah. the evangelical right in the United States. It's simply that they care about the Supreme Court, and he's the one who's gonna who's gonna nominate the, the proper justices. Um, yeah. Whereas these these guys in, in Brazil are, I mean, I, there was one guy I can't remember his name. He's he's actually a pastor, right? Uh, Malafaia is a pastor. Uh, yeah. I mean, several of them have been pastors in their, in their, their past. Uh, what's his name? Bolsonaro's a, a Catholic, right? He's not actually a, okay. uh, uh, an evangelical pastor. But yeah, I mean, I think the relationship of religion to, of actual religious practice to religious conservatism is remarkably variable. You know, I mean, in the United States as well as in Brazil, right? You can have religious conservatives who are, you know, extremely faithful or people who just kind of represent religious conservatism without necessarily having a pretty, any kind of direct relationship with their own religious practice. Um, I mean, that of course is amplified by the presidential election, right? Where mm-hmm. Donald Trump is in no way as faithful a Christian as Hillary Clinton, ironically. Right. right? Um, and I think part of what that shows us is the ways that um, identifying that you know conservatism has become more identitarian, sort of related to what we were talking about before about like deploying minoritarian status, you know, uh, in order to defend traditional values or defend what is actually a sort of hegemonic position. Um, you know, calling oneself uh, oneself a victim of heterophobia or of anti-Christian violence or what have you. Um, those are positions that resemble identitarian ones. And I think mm-hmm. to a extent part of an explanation for what we're seeing is the emergence of conservatism as an identitarian position, right? I am a conservative, therefore I believe in the following things. I also, you know, support the, these, uh, these other unassociated elements of a conservative platform. And I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because he's the conservative candidate, right? His own religious practice doesn't enter the equation. It is what he represents as the forefront of, uh, of, of sort of a set of interest groups who, who acclaim him as a Christian conservative, regardless of what he actually is, right? I mean, I think that is kind of what identity politics does, right? It makes, uh, it uses categorizations that can never apply individually, right? It denies intersectionality, denies complexity, and therefore leaves us with the ability of conservatism to become an identity, right? And an actionable identity. Um, and I think that's part of why we see so much variability in what people are actually doing as Christians, as opposed to what Christianity means as a political uh, signifier. It's also, I mean, it's curious to me to, to think about the, conservative side of things, co-opting identity politics, um, yeah. but also to see 
religion, the Bible, so so explicitly deployed as a justification for racism. Yeah. Um, is I, I I was just looking at a painting. Um, I think it was from the 1880s by mm. uh, a Spanish guy who who relocated to Rio, the Redemption of Ham, yeah. right? Uh, which is like a cast-up painting from from uh, the Spanish colonial period. The the black African grandmother is pictured standing behind her mixed-race daughter who is holding a white infant and sitting next to her white husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this racial cleansing aspect, and then the idea that that Ham would be invoked again as a justification for for. Uh, for viewing Afro-Brazilians as, as subordinate, as inferior. Subordinate, inferior, and also not really part of the us, right? Uh-huh. You know, if, the, if, like, the we is Americans or Brazilians, um, that becomes more and more exclusive as if we incorporate Christianity as the heritage of European colonization and a colonization that is meant to be celebrated, right? I mean, this is also a reaction to... Um, narratives that are uncomfortable, right? That that colonialism, especially settler colonialism, caused all kinds of displacements and long-term, you know, structural inequalities. Those are complex, you know, historically grounded phenomena that people don't want to have to confront, right? I mean, I think most of us who teach find this in the classroom, right? That, you know, talking about imperialism it's rarely popular, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially because what we're left with in the wake of decades of identity politics is something like uh, an oppression Olympics, as some people call it, right? A sort of a way in which identity politics only allows people to claim rights based on past oppression, right? And if that's the case, well, um, it is not history becomes not only you know, a cautionary tale, right, but also a currency for sort of gaining ground or losing ground, right? And I think that is the the sort of, um, that is the problem that is at the heart of what we're seeing here, right, is the the notion that this is a zero-sum game um, and that the kinds of oppression that are being invoked by, you know, rightly, by, by, um, identitarian groups in the struggle for, say, civil rights, right, that those things necessarily entail a loss of rights by a hegemonic group, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know um, where to take that in terms of, like, the invocation of the Bible, right, except that it underscores the notion that there is an inherent rightness to thinking about Brazil as a Christian country, or the United States as a Christian country, and the ways that that naturally, right, and ironically enough, intersectionally, brings um, Eurocentrism back into the equation in a sanctioned way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you mentioned once in the article, um, I think early on, uh, Brazil's indigenous population. Yeah. And I, just, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about just where they fall in this whole mess and uh, what what the what the implications of this kind of language become for them yeah i think it's a really good question and, and not, i mean not i don't i don't mean to treat them as a homogenous group of, of course no and actually i'm not sure that i'm the most 
that I'm the authority to who, to whom one should appeal on this question because I'm you know an, an expert in indigenous studies right and I don't work on indigenous culture or even the idea of indigeneity in Brazil as a historical category. I mean, I will say that in Brazil, as in the United States, indigeneity and indigenous people are often forgotten about, except symbologically, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, as, yeah, I mean, in Brazil, the mythology is, you know, the sort of like cartoonish, you know, tripod of the foundations of Brazilian racial identity being indigenous and African and Portuguese, right? And that's what gives rise to modern Brazil. But, you know, the, the plight of actual alive indigenous people is forgotten or actually actively elided in narratives in which it's presumed that indigenous people are actually, that they were all sort of exterminated by colonization and their descendants today are sort of forgotten in national conversations. The place where that comes running up against a wall is, you know, as in other settler societies, when it comes to resources, right? I mean, agribusiness, energy industries, uh, you know, large pharaonic projects of the government, especially hydroelectric dams. These are things that have threatened the lives and livelihood of um, the descendants of indigenous people in Brazil increasingly in recent decades. Um, and the pushback against those is kind of similar to the pushback here, right? I mean, like the idea that we should drill now and keep drilling, right, for oil that happens to, you know, uh, lie on the land of, you know, of indigenous groups in the United States has analogs in Brazil, right, where there's a willingness to allow indigenous groups to just be the casualties of quote-unquote development. Um, so I think... You know, there are big differences in terms of how indigeneity works in Brazil versus in the U.S. But I do think that the similar, that what is similar is the illusion of Native peoples from national conversations until they become visible as, you know, obstacles in the way of progress or obstacles in the way of development or obstacles in the way of the exploitation of resources that are presumed to be beneficial to the rest of people. Where where do you find yourself looking? Where do colleagues uh, who study the region or who are involved in the region, where are they looking um, just to see maybe not even what's what's going to happen, but what is happening? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are good outlets for information comes from Brazil. It is hard, right, because the the – you know, the media platforms and the corporate media are as bamboozling there as anywhere. Um, Rede Brasil Atual is a Portuguese language source that does have a sort of, you know, anti-establishment bent, and I have been consulting that. I think in terms of what is going to happen, I have to say, you know, I think the outlook is much more defensive than anything else on the part of people who consider themselves to be progressives or who do not identify as conservative. Um, recently, uh, we had Jean Pilis here, who is the Brazil's only openly gay legislator at the federal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, he, uh, sort of traveled around the, the Northeast, uh, with Jim Green, who's a historian at Brown, uh, and they came to DC and also went to New York. Uh, and Jim has been circulating a petition to protect Release from what has emerged as a legislative process to strip him of his mandate based on his 
uh, altercations with Bolsonaro. Um, I don't know what's going to happen there. <laughs> you know, like it seems entirely possible that there will be a procedural elimination of this person who is not only a legitimate federal deputy, but a symbol of the gains of LGBT groups uh, in Brazil in recent decades. Um, so it does seem really possible that we're going to see some some significant setbacks in terms of rights movements and social movements, um, both symbolically and in terms of real everyday policies. You know, I mean, the attempt on the part of the current Brazilian administration to freeze federal spending, I mean, it flies in the face of all the economic wisdom. You know, it, it is, there's a, a broad array of experts who are willing to say what a bad idea this is. And yet it seems to be this kind of identitarian issue, right? One that is about, you know, small government and not my taxes. Um, and that I, I, I mean, I have to admit, I, I'm in a pretty dark place about it. It seems like it needs to play out no matter what the disastrous consequences in order for there to be some kind of turnabout. All right. Thank you so much, Ben. Oh my gosh, my pleasure, Helen. That was Ben Cowan, and this has been NACLA Radio. Stay tuned next week for another interview with NACLA Report contributor Geraldo Cadava. Your generosity makes NACLA possible. Please do go to nakla.org to donate, subscribe, and check out the great content that's updated there every week. You can also like us at facebook.com slash nakla and follow us on Twitter at nakla, that's N-A-C-L-A. Thank you so much for listening and for sending us your thoughts and feedback. Thanks also to the Nakla web editor, Laura Weiss, who has been there for me through every audio snafu and every unanticipated learning curve, and without whom this podcast would really never get done. And thanks to the rest of the NACLA team, who worked tirelessly to make the report, the website, and the podcast a reality. Sam Kellogg, Josh Friendstring, Christy Thornton, and Alejandro Velasco. NACLA Radio is produced by me. Our theme music is by Radio Jarocho. Hey,